Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. After 10 years in a place, immigrants, even those in the country illegally, start to feel at home. And I say I'm New England, <laughs> New Englander now. <laughs> so, claim shouter, <laughs> patriot. <laughs> even my dog is a Boston Terrier. <laughs> From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll bring you the unique case of a Brazilian immigrant living on Martha's Vineyard who's now facing deportation. And ever thought this about your town? We loved being in the area, but we felt that it was lacking in the kind of culture that we wanted to be a part of. Well, you're not alone. A lot of towns in New England are having trouble keeping young people around. Plus, you think it's hard to get into Yale University? Well, try its super secret society's skull and bones. So tell me what would happen if we were just to go up and just knock on the door. I mean, obviously, I'm assuming they wouldn't just let us in. No, they certainly wouldn't let you in. We'll get you as far as the front door. Next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that could mean the difference for thousands of immigrants between staying in the country and being deported. To understand what's being argued, we meet the man at the center of it all, a Brazilian immigrant who overstayed his visa and for almost 16 years has lived on Martha's Vineyard. WBUR's Shannon Dooling has the story. Martha's Vineyard is best known as a summer vacation mecca, hosting the Obamas and other celebrities who enjoy the polished charm of the island getaway. After a 45-minute ferry ride, you arrive in Vineyard Haven, where you can rent bikes or a Mini Cooper to explore the island. The population explodes in the busy summer months, but this time of year, the island is buzzing with a different energy, with year-rounders tackling home improvement projects. See all this? That goes down 12 inches, well, even, even uh, more. That's like an L shape, just for protects from skanks. Wesley Pereira and Gail Meister have been neighbors for more than a decade. On this cool spring day, they're checking out the new skunk-proof fencing Pereira installed around the foundation of Meister's cottage. There were six of them under there, six skunks. Their two homes share a single driveway that empties into a wide open field. The day we meet, Pereira is wearing a Patriots hat and a hooded sweatshirt with an outline of Martha's Vineyard stenciled on the chest. The word home is printed in lowercase letters. Sitting down at his dining room table, Pereira explains he came to the U.S. from Brazil on a tourist visa when he was 19 years old and never left. After living in Boston for a few years, he ventured out to the vineyard, where there are plenty of jobs, he says, for people willing to work hard. And it's been home ever since. And I say I'm New England, <laughs> New Englander now. <laughs> so, claim shouter, <laughs> patriot. <laughs> Even my dog is a Boston Terrier. <laughs> Pereira, now 37 and married, works as a painter, landscaper, and handyman. Both of his U.S. citizen daughters were born on the island. For raised kids here is the best place you can have it. My daughter can bike to the library. The life quality here is very high. 
But as much as Pereira and his family enjoy island living, there's an uncertainty that weighs heavily upon all of them. I'm in another stage now. What could happen? That's the problem. What could happen? We don't know. The uncertainty dates back to 2006, when federal immigration officials sent Pereira what's called a notice to appear, charging him with overstaying his visa. By statute, this notice to appear should have given the date and time of the hearing, but it didn't. And that forms the basis of the Supreme Court case and may very well determine Pereira's future. Because once proper service has been made, it stops the time, quote unquote, for a non-citizen who is trying to accrue 10 years of presence in this country. Sarah Sherman Stokes is an immigration attorney and associate director of Boston University's Immigrants' Rights Program. There's something called 10-year cancellation of removal, but that's only eligible to folks who have been here for 10 years or more without having their time stopped. So imagine a clock. If you're an immigrant living in the U.S. without authorization, a clock starts ticking the moment you enter the country. If your clock, your time in the country, hits 10 years, under some circumstances, you could be eligible to stay in the country. The government says, though, once a notice to appear is issued, it stops the clock from accruing more time. David Zimmer, one of Pereira's attorneys, says this is the crux of the argument before the Supreme Court. The issue in this case is what happens if the government serves something that it calls a notice to appear, but that says that the time and place the proceedings will be held is yet to be determined. Zimmer argues the government isn't living up to its statutory obligations when it issues incomplete notices, like the one Pereira received. More than a year passed before Pereira was actually assigned a court date. It was a year lost from his clock. There are, there are a lot of people who are in this situation where they have this time in between the two notices and they, they need to know whether or not it, it counts. And if it does count, then that could determine whether they're eligible for cancellation of removal. The government is initiating deportation proceedings with a notice to appear. It, it shouldn't matter exactly when and where and at what hour those proceedings are going to take place. Jessica Vaughn is Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, which favors stricter immigration enforcement. She says the government's obligation is fulfilled and the clock is stopped the moment a notice to appear is issued. And it's unreasonable, she says, to expect the government to know every detail about a future proceeding. Appellate courts across the country have disagreed on this very question of what information needs to be included in a notice to appear in order for the government to stop an immigrant's so-called clock. Sarah Sherman Stokes at Boston University says these differing opinions are what makes Pereira's case ripe for a Supreme Court decision. Both sides agree that this issue will remain entrenched. Unless the Supreme Court addresses this, the circuit split is likely to remain. She says it's unclear just how many people could become eligible for this relief from deportation if the court rules in favor of Pereira, but the impact could be profound. For Pereira, it could mean the difference between staying on the island he loves and returning to his native Brazil. I try don't think much because don't help. So I try focus and other things because it's not going to help at all. Just wait. That's my thing now. Until then, Pereira's clock stands still while his life goes on. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston.
The Supreme Court heard arguments this week in the case that Shannon Dooling's been following. She was present at the Supreme Court, and she joins us now. Welcome back to Next, Shannon. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So what was the focus of the oral arguments that you heard at the Supreme Court? Well, I have to say it was just fascinating to watch and to listen because there were so many questions about the practical implications of this, you know, notice to appear. And both attorneys were just peppered with questions about how these notices are defined and why this matters. So that's really the crux of the argument here. Um, It was apparent to me that the justices were really focused on a few things. The language in the statute, whether or not it was meant to define a notice to appear, or whether the language was really just to be more of a guideline. And and then also they were trying to understand why it matters at all. And so multiple justices repeatedly asked, why is it important for a date and time to be included on this initial notice? And that's, as we just heard in, in our feature story, that's what's you know, in question with Mr. Pereira. He did not have a date and time on his notice. So Justice Gorsuch actually went so far as to question why the government thinks it can decide which parts of the notice to appear were important. And he compared this decision-making process to the short story, The Emperor's New Clothes. And this is what Justice Gorsuch had to say. It doesn't have to have a date it doesn't have to have a time. Does it have to have the charges? Does it have to have the facts? I mean, when does the emperor have no clothes? At what point? And that back and forth really got laughter uh, in the courtroom. And so basically what he was saying is, when does this notice to appear cease to be a notice to appear? So what happens next in this case, Shannon? Well, both the attorney for the government, Frederick Liu, and David Zimmer, who represents Pereira, say they expect a decision in probably late June. Here's Zimmer talking about the sort of best case scenario for his client. So if it's favorable, um, then the case will be remanded to the First Circuit, uh, which would presumably then remand it back to the immigration authorities, and then he'd be able to apply for cancellation of removal. That decision would also potentially impact thousands of other immigrants in similar situations who may then become eligible to apply for this cancellation of removal. And of course, it's important to note that there's no guarantee that they'd be granted this relief from deportation, but, you know, they'd at least become eligible to apply for it. On the flip side, if the court rules that the government's notice to appear, you know, did in fact stop Pereira's so-called clock, then Pereira, you know, will likely end up being deported to Brazil. We heard you in in your story report uh, that Pereira thinks that there is availability for a lot of people on Martha's Vineyard who, who, uh, quote, work hard. I know I was surprised by the the population you're reporting on living on Martha's Vineyard. What more can you tell us about the immigrant population there? Yeah, well, I think it's first important to understand the type of work that's available. So we're talking about a lot of service industries, so restaurants, landscaping, construction, roofing, painting, domestic workers, hotel workers. So those are really the needs uh, for the island. And then we're also talking about a lot of money, a lot of wealth concentrated, you know, at least seasonally on the vineyard as well. So it's, it's sort of 
you know, the traditional immigrant's tale, if you will. One Brazilian family comes to the island, makes a living, welcomes friends and family to come, gives them a job, they make a living, and so on. And to understand exactly how the Brazilian community sort of fits into the mix of the economy on the island, I sat down with a pastor and business owner, uh, Valsi Carvalho. He's sort of grown, evolved really into a leader in the Brazilian community on Martha's Vineyard ever since he brought his family to the island in 2001. And he says that for many Brazilians on the island, making a good living is the big draw. The way they can work hard and make money is that the huge difference is the first priority why they choose Martha's Vineyard. And Valsi Carvalho's son and daughter-in-law joined us around the kitchen table as well. And I was just trying to sort of ask a simple question about how the island would function and sort of what would happen if Brazilian immigrants were, you know, at some point unable to make it to the island. And, well, I think it's easiest to just take a listen because I didn't even get the question out. What would happen on the island if... What would happen? Uh, uh, uh. Chaos. <laughs> if Brazilians just disappeared, Chaos. nobody's yard would get done, nobody's house would be cleaned. Uh, all of the cooks in the kitchens here, they're, I mean, all of the, all of the restaurants here, the, the high-end restaurants, they're all Brazilians. Valsi Carvalho actually estimates that there are around 4,200 Brazilians uh, living on Martha's Vineyard, and some of them are there seasonally, only in the summertime. He says that he believes about 50% of those are living on the island without documentation. Um, but, you know, I, I heard the sort of same sentiment from business owners, from year-round residents, and from other community leaders on the island as well, that the place really would not function if it weren't for this community of Brazilians that have um, called the island home for years now. Shannon Dooling covers immigration for the New England News Collaborative and WBUR. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Several states in New England have already strictly tightened gun control laws. Others, like Rhode Island, are debating those issues right now. Vermont, surprisingly, passed a series of reforms earlier this month. Among other things, the legislation raises the legal age of purchase, it mandates background checks for private sales, and it bans devices like bump stocks. It's a significant change for Republican Governor Phil Scott, who campaigned on the promise to oppose gun restrictions. And gun rights activists aren't taking it sitting down. They filed a lawsuit saying the new measures violate the Vermont Constitution. Here to talk with us is senior reporter from Vermont Public Radio, John Dillon. John, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Hi, John. I gave uh, just a few bullet points there, but what else can you tell us about what's in this package of gun reforms? Well, I think what one very salient point is that most of these measures were not controversial. Uh, the One allows police to take a weapon when they respond to a domestic violence call and they see a, a gun at, a, at the scene. Um, that can be now removed um, without a warrant. Then the second allows a, a, a weapon to be seized in cases where a judge determines the person is at imminent risk of harming themselves or others. But it was this third bill, in, in the, which had the provisions that you mentioned, that was far and away the most controversial, and that was uh, included raising the uh, legal age 
of purchase to 21 from 18, with some exceptions, uh, including if you've completed a firearms safety course. And then uh, a ban on bump stocks, which were, those were the rapid fire devices used in the Las Vegas shooting. And then probably the most controversial and the one that's subject to the legal challenge is the ban on high capacity magazines. And it's set now under Vermont law at a ban on 10 round magazines for long guns and 15 rounds um, for for uh, handguns. And and that's that was the one that uh, actually has proven to be the most contentious um, of these of of all of the measures that the governor signed the other week. So let's take a step back and remind our listeners that the gun culture in Vermont is very different from the gun culture in some other New England states. The things that you just outlined as potentially controversial in Vermont wouldn't be in Massachusetts or Connecticut. As a matter of fact, they've been passed into law quite some time ago. So give us a little bit more background, John, on the Vermont gun culture that exists up until this point that maybe provides some of this pushback you're talking about. Well, Vermont has had one of the, some of the most lax gun laws in the country. You can carry a weapon, uh, concealed carry without a permit. There's no registration of firearms. There's a very high rate of ownership. There's a lot of hunters up here. Um, and we also have a very low firearm uh, murder rate. Um, in fact, most of the gun deaths are, are suicides. Because of this, perhaps, uh, and because of the strong culture surrounding firearms, every politician to this point, to this legislative session, has avoided the gun issue. From Howard Dean, these are Democratic governors, Howard Dean, uh, Peter Shumlin, our most recent Democratic governor, neither one of them would have signed this bill, and, and both had said, our state laws are fine, we don't have a gun problem, state, state should be allowed to regulate firearms on their own. Um, and everything changed that week in February um, with uh, the Valentine's Day shooting in Parkland, Florida that left 17 students dead. And then a day later, a young man was arrested in Vermont for what police alleged was a detailed school shooting plot. And that's what changed, um, it propelled this legislation and changed our governor's mind, a Republican, on gun issues. Let's actually listen to Governor Scott here at the bill signing. I believed since we are such a small, tight-knit state, that we were different and somehow insulated from the violence the rest of the world is seeing. But I was wrong. And that's not always easy to admit. There's a lot in that little soundbite, John, including what sounds like a lot of people yelling in the background and, and a politician admitting he was wrong about something. That would be headlines in almost any story. It, it was a, an, an incredible afternoon when he, when he signed that bill in public on the state house steps, uh, in a table just feet away from a crowd of a couple of hundred gun rights supporters, and then also uh, on the other side, they just sort of fell into two sides. Um, gun control supporters. The gun rights supporters were the ones that were yelling there. They they were extremely upset by Governor Scott's actions. They called him a traitor. They called him a liar. They called him things I can't say on the radio. And for 25 minutes, Phil Scott stood there and delivered his speech, and they didn't stop their opposition, their very vociferous opposition. Um, the governor did say 
did acknowledge he had promised not to to do what he did. He said, "I campaigned on on a promise not to uh, not to sign any gun legislation." But everything changed with um, the arrest of this 18-year-old with Parkland, and then the arrest of the Vermont youth. And he admitted, as we heard, that he he felt he was wrong on that. Um, and as a result, his his political support behind this bill propelled. Um, propelled it to passage, and then he signed it very publicly in the face of that strong, strong vocal opposition. So there has been strong vocal opposition from uh, gun rights lobbyists around the country, and whenever they talk about gun rights, they always talk about the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. But you and your colleagues there have been reporting on the Vermont Constitution and how that's really the legal challenge that's being put forward. Maybe you can explain a bit, John, of how the Vermont Constitution differs in what it says from the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Well, the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the federal Constitution, says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And it's linking the right to the defense and security of a state. The Vermont Constitution goes farther and says the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. And that is being used now by in an appeal um, in state state court of the magazine ban provision of this recently enacted gun law. And What's interesting about this is that it's not actually a new legal tactic to rely on the Vermont Constitution for the protection of civil liberties. There was a Vermont Supreme Court justice 30 years ago who said, hey, lawyers in Vermont, look to our Constitution because there are things in here, for instance, on Fourth Amendment issues, illegal search and seizure, that offer greater protections for individuals than the U.S. Constitution. So it's not a, a new legal tactic, but it's a new one, obviously, in gun cases. And why they're doing it is because under federal court rulings, the Second Amendment has been interpreted to not prohibit restrictions on gun ownership, even strict restrictions like the D.C. laws and others. Circuit and appeals courts in on the federal level around the country have said those do comport with the Second Amendment. So the the people appealing this are not going to federal court. They're going to state court, and they're citing the broader provisions of the Vermont Constitution. What's the broad popular sentiment around this, John, in, in the state of Vermont? Do do Vermonters think that this makes a lot of sense, what the governor is, is doing now? So I'm not sure, but but what the political fallout is for Governor Scott and for candidates who sign or for representatives and who become candidates who signed this. But it could be that the popular support is much more in favor of gun restrictions than this very strong, but perhaps vocal minority uh, that were so loud on the day he signed it. John Dillon, a senior reporter for Vermont Public Radio. He reports for the New England News Collaborative. Thanks so much for joining us, John. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Great to be here. Coming up, it's a big question. Why are so many young people leaving New England? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming.
It's a problem throughout our region. Young people just don't stick around. Some say it's the cost of living. For others, it's about jobs. In fact, a recent report from the Boston Redevelopment Authority says job opportunities are more encouraging to grads than housing prices are discouraging. VPR's Brave Little State podcast has been getting questions about why young people are leaving since they started their show. For VPR's Liam Elder Connors, it's a personal question, and he set out to find the answer. I like the joke that I've lived in the same square mile my whole life. But if I'm being honest, it's more like two square miles. I grew up in Colchester, graduated from the town high school, and then went to college right down the road from my parents' house at St. Michael's. And now I work for VPR, which happens to be in the same neighborhood. I'm a young person, and I most definitely did not leave. But I've been hearing the narrative that young people are leaving Vermont for years, even at my high school graduation. So when I started reporting this story, I began by asking some friends why they left. Hi. Hi, this is Liam. How are you? This is Alexandra Libstack, a friend of mine from high school. Right now, she's living in Massachusetts, going to grad school. It's been a couple of years, I think. Like, at least five years, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for real. We exchanged some awkward pleasantries. Did we have classes together, too? I know we had some classes. Well... We might, did we? We realized our strongest connection must have been speech team. I think Mrs. Derber would be very proud of you (laughs) because I was thinking about speech team and how you always used to do the radio competitions. (laughs) Alexandra, unlike me, hasn't lived in Vermont since high school. Why did you leave ultimately? Why, Why did you decide you wanted to get out of the state? I felt like I had to. I felt like I... I needed to see something different. Like I needed to kind of break out of the small town vibe and just have my moment to explore life outside of Vermont. Did you ever think you wanted to come back? You know, I guess now I see Vermont more as a place to settle down. And I'm not really in a point in my life where I'm ready to settle down right now. This is a feeling I've also had and a sentiment I've heard from many friends. They want to end up in Vermont, but first they want to see the world. I mean, I mean, I don't want this just to be me asking you questions. I mean, do you have anything you want to ask me about, like, what, it, you know, like, this is a two-way street here? Yeah, well, I always found it interesting that you stayed, honestly, because, you know, I think, I think about high school, I think about, you know, our friends and who ended up where, and I would often think about it. I was like, yeah, Liam stuck around. So... I guess you've, you have found something to be fulfilling, or at least fulfilling enough for all these years. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, wanted to leave, I wanted to leave really immediately after high school, but it didn't work out that way, and I fell in love with I always say that. Every time someone asks why I'm still here, I get defensive. I feel embarrassed, which is ridiculous. I like Vermont. I like my life here. But when you're in your mid-twenties, a journalist, and prone to bouts of existential dread, if you're staying and everyone else seems to be going, you wonder, what's really going on here? There are many issues to explore when it comes to Vermont demographics, like the state's aging population, declining birth rates, and migration between counties in the state. But in this episode, our focus is more narrow. We're going to look at youth migration, specifically how many young people are actually leaving and moving into the state. 
Michael? Are you Liam? I'm Liam. Hi. Michael. Hey, it's good to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. Michael Moser is a coordinator at the Vermont State Data Center. He walked me through some of the recent census estimates, specifically looking at the number of people between the ages of 20 and 44 who left Vermont and the number who moved in. The question was, young, if it's true that young people are leaving Vermont in large numbers, and based on what we're looking at right here, how would you answer that question? Well, you know, if I look at the total tally for the state of Vermont, actually Vermont is gaining around 166 people within those age categories overall. So basically, more people came here than left. Not a lot of people, but still it was a net gain. Which is kind of surprising. I mean, that's not not exactly something I feel like I was expecting. It's a little bit surprising. And get this. If we look at a younger age range, 20 to 34, Vermont gains even more people, almost twice as many. So maybe we can all relax a bit about this idea of young people leaving. The numbers don't show a grand exodus. But at the same time, these gains aren't huge. I mean, it's invisible. It's an invisible number. You're not going to be able to see that in in any substantial way in any community. Also a disclaimer. This data comes from a survey that uses sampling. And for Vermont, which has a small population, that means a high margin of error. The margin of error, uh, in some cases, is greater than the actual number that we're talking about. But Moser says that this data still gives us a sense of what migration in and out of the state looks like. And we were losing young people just a handful of years ago. Between 2006 and 2010, the net migration was negative, meaning we lost young people, around 230 actually. We've gone from loss relatively recently to gains. These losses can get stuck in our heads, especially living in a small state. You might know a few people in your town that move away, and that small number can feel enormous. It might feel even bigger when you never meet the people who are moving in. These losses that we had been experiencing um, and that we are experiencing are, you know, still on our minds, even though maybe the picture may be changing as we go forward. Even though the numbers don't show a massive youth migration out of Vermont, people do still leave. And when that happens, we want to know why. Enter Cheryl Morris. She's a professor of geography at the University of Vermont. A few years ago, she and some colleagues looked at why people leave, stay, and come back to Vermont. Their Roots Migration Survey heard from more than 3,600 current and former Vermonters. So when we started reading people's responses, there was so much joy, heartbreak, attachment, emotion in those responses. Morse says they expected to hear that people were leaving solely because of jobs and the high cost of living in Vermont. But it turned out to be more nuanced. Those were the never the factors alone. They were always in combination with other things like I wanted to go see the world or I have a, a partner who doesn't want to live in Vermont, so I didn't come back. There was just this host of almost like a web of reasons that people gave for leaving, and it was not as economically driven as we expected to see. Moore says the, quote, leavers were also looking for cultural diversity. About 20% of the people said that they left Vermont because they expressly were seeking more diverse experiences and encounters with people from different backgrounds. Overall, though, Morse says the survey just scratched the surface. There's just a lot more work that can be done in the future to understand the relationship between the reasons that people leave and 
what draws new people to come into the state. And that's an area for further research. Here's the thing. This preoccupation with people leaving is nothing new. It's been on people's minds literally since Vermont became a state. The theme of migration, of leaving Vermont, is the dominant historiographic theme in Vermont history. Jill Mudgett's a Vermont historian, and in the past she's been a VPR commentator. She's going to take us way back to Vermont's first decades as a state. Mudgett says about 30 years after Vermont was settled, people were leaving. They were going west, where it was flatter and the land was easier to farm. You start to see Vermonters leaving and writing letters back to relatives still in Vermont, kind of coaxing their brothers and their cousins to join them. How are they coaxing people to leave Vermont? Well, you you get actually pretty hilarious letters. Hilarious in an 1800s kind of way, like in this letter from a Vermonter who moved to Wisconsin. And he said, I feel almost provoked with myself when I look around here and see land spread out before me and nothing to do but put in the plow, and you will have a crop of corn without hoeing. And then think how we've been hanging on to a little strip of land in Vermont, not wide enough to swing a cat around without dashing her brains out against the hills. Not that anyone would want to do that, but whatever. Mudgett says pretty soon people were having conversations that might sound familiar. You start to see Vermont culture makers, Vermont political leaders worrying about the fact that their kids are leaving, that their kids may leave. They were so worried schools developed a Vermont-centric curriculum. And the motivation was to instill in Vermont children an appreciation of the natural landscape. As people started to leave Vermont, others hunkered down and defended their reasons for staying even writing poems about it. And one stanza reads, "'Tis here in Vermont, the land of green mountains, I choose to remain contented to dwell. Among the green mountains, the lofty green mountains, the cloud-capped green mountains, contented to dwell." There are other lines in the poem about having Johnny Cake and other corn-based foods and butter and cheese and how that's all not only good but perfectly adequate I'm just like thinking of the contemporary day version of like Johnny Cakes and st- like now it's just like, yeah, come get some like Chunky Monkey and a Heady Topper or something. Like. <laughs> right, right. And we all know that we all feel arrogantly proud that our beer is better and our cheese is better. So along with our long-standing local vore tradition, the worry that Vermont isn't a place for young people stretches back into our history. We've worried about out-migration since right after we got settled. It's almost like we didn't even have time to get comfortable. Does Vermont have an existential problem? Like we're always worried that are we good enough for people? Historically, that's definitely true, that we felt second best. That's Liam Elder Connors for Brave Little State. You can hear the full episode on bravelittlestate.org. Retaining young people is an issue for other towns and cities across the region. Keene, New Hampshire is trying to build this reputation as a destination for young creative types. New Hampshire Public Radio's Robert Garova reports on why some want to develop New Hampshire's arts and culture scene and attract the creative people who power it. These stretched canvas pieces are particularly noisy. At her home studio, embroidery artist Sarah Benning shows me how she stitches together one of her pieces. It's a sun-filled room at this time of the morning. The artist's finished work spills into the space around her, with dozens of circular canvases bubbling up onto the walls. There are also plenty of houseplants around. A lot of my work is inspired by my own houseplants. Um, the very first plant pieces I stitched were actually inspired by houseplants that I killed. Uh, luckily, I've gotten better, and they're not all dead plants now. 
Viewing Benning's embroidery work feels like looking through little portholes to find scenes of lush green plant life and tiny stitched scenes of home. Furniture, I'm really inspired by mid-century modern furniture and those kinds of clean, minimal lines. What started as a hobby for Benning is now a full-time job. She teaches embroidery workshops around the world, consistently sells out of original pieces that range from about 80 bucks to over $1,000, and has half a million fans keeping up with her work on Instagram. Benning's lived in Europe and bigger cities like Chicago and Baltimore, but as of this year, her home and the hub for her booming art business is Keene, New Hampshire. The affordability of the area for us to have this much space at home is really what, what drew us here. Virginia Lupi is director of New Hampshire's State Council on the Arts. She says she hears from artists all the time who move here for affordability reasons, and she's got a term for what they help bring to the state, creative economy. What we're seeing in the last several years is an increase in the number of towns and cities who are developing arts commissions. So these are often volunteer, but units of local government that are very interested in promoting the creative economy in their communities. This term, the creative economy, applies to a broad collection of professionals, folks in the advertising industry and nonprofits, and artists like Benning, too. But the question is, why are cities and towns in New Hampshire so enthusiastic about it? Quite honestly, um, the creative economy is very big business uh, in our country and in the state of New Hampshire. Nicolette Clark is executive director of the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord. Clark points to 2015 data compiled by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which shows arts and culture is a $2.3 billion industry in New Hampshire. It accounts for about 3% of total gross state product. And focusing on the creative economy has become something of a trend. There's a bill making its way through the state legislature, which would create a council on the creative economy. May's State Tourism Conference includes a presentation about prosperity through arts and culture. But not everyone can get behind the idea. Ben Davis is a national art critic for Artnet. This idea of the creative economy, which is this kind of magical uh, totem you can wave around that seems that, like, in the theory of it solves all these problems. In, in fact, it doesn't really work like that. Davis is skeptical of touting the creative economy for several reasons. Here's one. It's such a broadly shared idea that if everybody's counting on doing the same thing across the country, from Santa Fe, New Mexico, to Appalachian, West Virginia, not everybody can become the new cool creative destination at once. But there are people who are actively working to make New Hampshire that cool creative destination. This is a live performance in Keene from a New Hampshire band. They're called Band Band, actually. They're performing at an event space run by two women who are working to increase Keene's arts profile. Rebecca Hamilton is one of them. She co-founded a company called Machina Arts, which manages live events and offers design services. We loved being in the area, but we felt that it was lacking in the kind of culture that we wanted to be a part of, uh, the creative arts community. And we realized we had a decision that we could either leave the area, go to New York City, San Francisco, some big city that was a hub for culture, or we could create the kind of experience that we wanted to have. Hamilton has roots in the area. Her other job is VP of Research and Development at Badger, her family's beauty product company in Gilsom. She finds her two occupations have interests that overlap, especially when it comes to recruiting. 
when we're looking at bringing in top talent, one of the challenges we have is that it's really hard to relocate someone to this area. And if there was more of a creative economy here, I think that it would help us in being able to bring and attract talent. For Hamilton, the health of New Hampshire's creative economy is bound up with the broader economy and with the future of the state. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robert Garova. Bikini, New Hampshire isn't the only place trying to hold on to their young residents. Maine is trying to combat brain drain with legislation. There's a bill simplifying the Educational Opportunity Tax Credit to make it easier for Mainers to pay off their student loans. And if you're returning to college, New England states want you to stay here as well. A number of them are offering special tuition rates and fellowships to stay. If you return to Vermont, you could benefit from the Welcome Home tuition policy if you graduated from high school in 2015 or later and then moved away. Or you could commit to Rhode Island and get a tax credit at the same amount of all that student loan debt. And doesn't look too bad, does it? We've collected a list of all these resources for young people wanting to stay in New England. You can find it at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll explore the history of Yale's most infamous secret society. It's called Skull and Bones, and it's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. You always hear stories and rumors about secret societies at elite colleges. And one of the nation's oldest secret societies is right here at Yale University, the notorious Skull and Bones. Now, not much is known about what goes on at Skull and Bones, but you can easily find its headquarters right on Yale's campus in New Haven. The building is known as The Tomb, and WSHU's Davis Donovan brings us the history of both the building and this secret society as part of his podcast, Off the Path, from New York to Boston. Skull and Bones is not like any of the other brick buildings on Yale's campus. It's an ominous rectangular monolith with elements of Greco-Roman and Egyptian styles of architecture. It's a windowless building, and so it's called a tomb. David Allen Richards was a member in the 60s, and he's the author of a new book called Skulls and Keys. It's about the history of Yale's secret societies, Today, we look at the so-called tomb under a nearby overpass. And not just because it's raining. Members aren't allowed to even speak in front of the building. And I definitely couldn't get a tour. So tell me what would happen if we were just to go up and just knock on the door. I mean, obviously, I'm assuming they wouldn't just let us in. No, they certainly wouldn't let you in. There is a metal lock on the huge bronze doors. And if you pulled it, it would ring. But given modern security, it would be possible to see who was on the outside and you wouldn't gain admission. Most people don't know what really goes on beyond those huge bronze doors. Richards can't tell us because he's sworn to secrecy. But the Skull and Bones reputation is notorious. Rumors have flown around for more than a century about what goes on in this building. They might have the nuclear launch codes. It might house the skull of Geronimo. It's even said that new recruits are hazed as they lie naked in coffins. But Skull and Bones didn't start out focused on secrecy. 
Richard says when it was formed in 1832, it was designed to teach the students of Yale the art of public speaking. As children of the Enlightenment, the only way that they could succeed in a rising nation was through extemporaneous speech. In 1832, Yale didn't teach extemporaneous speech. The society's first 15 members met every Thursday night, and they sat in a circle. Each member had five minutes to give a speech on a chosen topic. The boys were training themselves to become public men in the bar, in the pulpit, and in the legislature. A lot of big names passed through the skull and bones doors, from poet Archibald McLeish to the historian David McCullough. Three presidents were members, William Howard Taft and both Bushes. Skull and Bones' most notorious moment in the spotlight was probably the 2004 election. Both presidential candidates had been in Skull and Bones. George W. Bush, class of 68, and John Kerry, class of 66. And that was pretty exciting to the conspiracy mongers because this is a club that has only 800 living members and two members of it were running for the presidency and the leadership of the free world. For most of history, the club was all male. Skull and Bones accepted its first female pledges, they call them taps, in the early 1990s. But Richards argues Yale's secret societies were fairly progressive, at least more so than Yale at large. They offered membership to a black student in the 1940s and welcomed their first gay members in the 1960s. Yale University has dozens of secret societies today, at least 47 by some counts. Each one is a little different, and most are surrounded by wild rumors and conspiracies. Skull and Bones is one of what's called the Big Three, along with Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head. Wolf's Head is supposed to have the largest water bill in Connecticut because of its swimming pool. That may go along with its silverware from Hitler uh, after World War II. Bones is supposed to have the nuclear codes. I don't say whether they're true or not, but they're kind of fun to talk about. A lot of members enjoy the public's endless speculation over what's true. In 2015, Yale's campus paper published a satirical quiz that's supposed to assign students to their ideal secret society based on factors like, has anyone in your family been elected to federal government? But also, do you like to drink rum? What did you think of the movie Dead Poet Society? It's an irreverent take on a culture that's taken a lot more seriously by people who are never anywhere near it than by people who actually take part in it. That's WSHU's Davis Donovan from his podcast series, Off the Path, From New York to Boston. Next, let's head across the pond to Old England. The British royal family, as you've likely seen, is growing. The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William and Kate Middleton, gave birth to a baby boy this week. But the new prince isn't the only addition. Prince Harry, William's younger brother, is set to marry American actress Meghan Markle on May 19th at Windsor Castle. The BBC's Daniel Mann found a Connecticut woman who is, well, let's just say, pretty excited about the whole thing. Americans venerate their republic, a nation born out of a war of independence which liberated the 13 colonies from British rule and gave birth to the United States, a country with no attachment to monarchy. But there's one American woman whose devotion to Queen Elizabeth makes her a royal superfan. 
In this country, we don't have, you know, anything like that. The kings and the queens and, you know, the castles and the jewelry and, you know, glamorous parties and, you know, you go someplace and you ride in a coach and it's just, it really is, it's like a dream come true. It's, it's like a fairy tale. Meet Donna Werner, who's 66 and from the Connecticut town of New Fairfield. Wearing a T-shirt with Prince William and the Duchess of Cambridge on the front, she takes pride in her mementos of royal weddings, ceramic whiskey bottles to mark the birth of Princess Diana's sons, commemorative biscuit tins and other souvenirs with red, white and blue flags. British ones, of course, not the Stars and Stripes. Next month will be very special for Mrs Werner because on the 19th of May, an American will become a member of her favourite family. Rachel Meghan Markle will marry Prince Henry of Wales, Harry, at Windsor Castle, just outside London, and the mother from Connecticut will be there to catch a glimpse of the royal couple as they make their way to St George's Chapel, where they'll tie the knot. She'll have a T-shirt on with the words Backup Bride and something extra to get their attention. Now this is what I'm going to wear the day of the wedding. I've got my tiara, which I'm going to make a veil. My daughter lives over there, so I already shipped over my tent, my little pink princess tent, um, a sleeping bag, camp chair, you know, uh, insulation for the ground because I'm going to be sleeping on the streets for three, four nights. The visit is one of many royal pilgrimages to England, and Mrs Werner says she won't stop until she meets Her Majesty. I'd love to just shake hands with the Queen. It's, it's a hobby. It's not an obsession. <laughs> well, maybe a little obsession. <laughs> That's Daniel Mann from the BBC. One, two, three, four, five, six. Ever drive past the stop and shop with the radio on? That's basically the plot line of a rock song that's become so synonymous with the state of Massachusetts that lawmakers are looking to make it the state rock song. They gave preliminary approval to a bill that would make Roadrunner by the Modern Lovers the official rock song of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The 1970s song by Natick native Jonathan Richmond details the delights found by driving Route 128 at night. This isn't the first time Bay State lawmakers have taken up this burning issue. A previous bill to make Roadrunner the official rock song was met with an opposing bill, arguing that Dream On by Aerosmith deserved the honor. But that dream is off, and lawmakers have come together behind the modern lover's classic. The bill is being reviewed for, quote, technical form before traveling to the House and Senate floor for final approvals. It would then arrive at the desk of Governor Charlie Baker. I don't know that he's spoken on the issue. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.